You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. Welcome to the Story Centric Podcast, episode number 28. I'm your host, Andrew Buckley. That's right, still your host, still Andrew Buckley. All right, guys, we're at the top of a two-parter. The next two episodes, we're going to delve into the awesome, fantastical world of best-selling author Nicholas Eames. He's a best-selling author of Kings of the Wild and its sequel, Bloody Rose. I, man, it, this is a bit of fan grab for me, guys, because I discovered Kings of the Wild just over a year ago. Absolutely loved it. Uh, totally kind of tripped up on it, looking for, you know, something really cool high fantasy, but not like classic high fantasy. And, you know, with a bit of humor, because I like a bit of a laugh. And Kings of the Wild was recommended to me uh, by a friend, and then I saw it all over TikTok for a while. So, you know, we get to chat about all kinds of things. I mean, the world building in this novel, of course, because fantasy comes hand in hand with pretty intense world building. We talk about Dungeons and Dragons and the influence it had on Nick uh, when he was younger. We talk about, you know, him getting his first agent, combining fantasy and music in like the most badass 70s rock way possible with Kings of the Wild because it is all based on, you know, rock musicians of the 70s but in a fantasy setting so good guys i mean come on this it's i i can't kind of gush enough about it because i did really enjoy it you know when you find a novel that's like unique that's what i felt with kings of the wild so getting to talk with nick was actually absolutely fantastic really enjoyed it so i hope you enjoy as much as i did so you know grab your broadsword pick up that uh that axe you've been keeping in your closet put on the hat with the horns on it and uh let's uh, get ready to do some battle here Introducing Mr. Nicholas Eames. Your books were recommended to me by a good friend in New York. I will actually, no, it's, I think I saw your books on TikTok first because you were, they were kind of a book talk sensation for a while. I saw them everywhere. Oh, really? Were they? Yeah. That's where I first saw the cover of, uh, yeah. of Kings of the Wild. Yeah. Uh, and then a friend reached out because I was asking for some book recommendations. I wanted some kind of fantasy, but I didn't want like high fantasy, but. I, I wanted, you know, something different. And he sent me like three different, I forget what the other two were, but Kings of the Wild was one of them. He said, you like Pratchett, you'll you'll like this this guy. It's yeah. Got, it's got the similar influences because right? I'm from England and I love Pratchett and uh, Adams and uh, Kings of the Wild was recommended and I absolutely loved it. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I didn't know it was uh, it was anything big on TikTok. The only time I've seen it on TikTok, I've seen it a few times on TikTok, but uh, I mean, once at least by someone who absolutely despised it. So I'm glad to hear it's getting some good press there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, well, when I was, went through uh, the research for you, I found tons and tons of positive re- reviews. But then it's like a, there are some people who just just hated it. <laughs> hated it too. Boy, do they ever. Boy, do they ever. Yeah. <laughs> there was no gray area. It's ever absolutely love it. Yeah, really, really despised it. And but, yeah, I get, I get not liking it for sure because it's not everyone's cup of tea. But boy, hating it seems seems like a lot. But yeah. oh well, to each so their own. Exactly. So you can't please everybody. So give me your origin story. Where do you? Because again, researching you, I'm like this guy's obviously British. And reading Kings of the Wild, I'm like this dude's <laughs> English. No, there's no doubt about it. And then I yeah. found out you're Canadian. So. <laughs> True. And as a Canadian, we do poach whatever words are best from from England and and America. So that is true. There's a bit of both in there. Um, my origin story uh, is, well, my origin story is that I am from England. Ultimately, my, my grandparents are, but uh, grew up born and raised in Canada. And when I was a teenager, started to write, 
got busted in in a high school English class for working on a book instead. And I had a supply teacher who thankfully didn't get me in trouble. And instead, um, he took it to his family gas station, these three chapters that I had written, uh, where they commonly served uh, a, a guy named Ed Greenwood, who created for Forgotten Realm setting, in which Baldur's Gate is set and all that kind of stuff. Um, he actually lived in a small town near me. And so Weird. he gave it to that guy, Ed Greenwood, and I never expected to see it again. But a few months later, that teacher worked, worked for, or came in again and, uh, and had it fully edited three chapters by this guy. And Ed like really, really, really meticulously edited them and gave me some really positive feedback along with a letter that said, uh, I had the fire of a good storyteller. So I kind of never forgot that, even though I, uh, soon after went to school for theater even there, I kind of kept writing it because that that uh, letter was in my head. So it wasn't until I kind of turned 25, actually, almost exactly that. Um, and I was reading a book by my favorite author, Guy Gabriel Kay, another Canadian. And it was a book about kind of legacy and and what you leave behind. And it's like, a, it's just unbelievably beautiful book. And there was one page in particular that when I finished it, I was just like, if I could ever write something that affects anyone the way this book has affected me, that would be a life worth living. And so there my journey began in earnest. Um, I probably worked for the next 12 years or so writing this giant book called The Fireborn that will never see the light of day. And I wrote it and rewrote it and it was massive and huge. And I cut it in half and sent it out and got rejected and edited it again. And finally, after about 10 or 11 years is when I came up with the idea for Kings of the Wild, the book that would be Kings of the Wild. I wrote the first three chapters of Kings of the Wild and said, well, I better go work on that masterpiece of mine again. So spent another year working on the first book. And then while I sent it out to get rejected yet again, I uh, decided to take another crack at, at, the, at the band which is what it was called at the time. So and thankfully that one, I knew I kind of had something different on my hands. I can't really regret uh, my first book because I learned a lot of lessons and made a lot of mistakes and fell in just about every pitfall a new writer can fall into. And so I know some writers, some writers just nail it right off the bat. I mean, there's very, very, very few that do that, but uh, most write a good four five, six, seven books before they get uh, published. So I just wrote one, one giant book that was about the size of six smaller books. And we're you're never gonna release that one. That's never gonna see the light of day. Probably not. No, I've poached some. I poached some names from it. Who knows if like it was very, very, very loosely. It was like a fantastical version of uh, the story of Hannibal, the Carthaginian, uh, who fought Rome back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Very loosely based on that, which is pretty much my favorite historical event. And uh, so, uh, who knows? I may try to use that idea again. But it, uh, my editor of Kings of the Wild asked to see it just in case, and never heard from her again. <laughs> regarding that book Fair i talked to her a lot but uh yeah interesting yeah. okay so taking a step back you were you grew up in ontario right mm -hmm. did you always have an interest in fantasy or was that something that developed later well pretty much always uh when i was very young i think uh i had some teachers who started reading to us in class and i know we got read things like raw doll and things like that but we de we definitely got read the lion witch in the wardrobe and the hobbit and i think that kind of kindled kindled my love of reading so i think by grade four so i was reading lord of the rings skipping over all the songs all the descriptions of land definitely the council of elrond i mean as everyone does i think until they turn 30 and can kind of stomach it totally um but yeah and i just i just loved it and so i i pretty read pretty voraciously ever since then that's neat so it was kind of an early reading thing was there i mean are you primarily like a fantasy reader or do you branch out from, from that? pretty much um I definitely read, I think maybe a bit broader when I was in high school and I, for a while I worked at a, a bookstore 
uh, our big chain here, which used to be called Chapters. Now it's called Indigo, but I worked mm-hmm. at a bookstore for many years, read a lot then. But ultimately, yeah, just I found fantasy books just ultimately the best. I love sci-fi as well. I, I would almost group them together. But I mean, although I, I love a good fiction book, ultimately, if you get a if you get a really good writer in fantasy or sci-fi, then it's just going to blow that fiction book out of the water because the fiction book, it's it's just constrained by everyday life. And yep, people got problems and I got problems. And my friends got problems and I don't need to read about them unless those problems involve dragons and or wizards. Um, yeah. Same reason I don't watch the news. I'm like, well, yeah. It's all, it's yeah. all real life problems. I, I prefer my so ultimately, yeah. And fantasy, I think the stakes can be a bit higher and, and sci-fi. The stakes can be a bit higher. Everything can just be turned up to 11 as it were. Uh, and I do read a lot of history books as well. And especially now I'm on like a huge history book uh, kick where I'm just, I'm buying a few of them and I'll probably read them pretty voraciously this year. Nice. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. The theater stuff, like you went, you went into theater. So you graduated high school and were, were you a popular kid in high school? Yeah, not for the first part. I mean, I was always very, I got along well with everyone. I was definitely kind of like I would a nerd. I would guess you'd say I'm in grade nine. I met the guy who introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons, and yet I dragged him along because eventually, by the end of high school, then yes, I was friends with all the popular kids, and my the the my dream girl asked me to prom, and everything went great. But I was definitely like I would say the nerdy jokester of the group, the Chandler, if you will. The Chandler. Ah, Um, But yeah, I think I got along, and I went to a very theater like oriented high school. So yeah, being a theater kid wasn't so bad there. No, I, I assume it wouldn't be. Uh, yeah. The uh, the D&D stuff, like, do you play a lot of D&D then in your teens? Yeah, quite a bit. And I think, obviously, those first games, because I had no idea how to do it, he DM'd. But pretty shortly thereafter, I was like, okay, enough of this. Yeah. Uh, so I, I took it over and DM'd for, for that friend, my brother, and uh, and even in through my 20s. It's been a while since I lived somewhere where I had a good group of friends that I could play it with. But I just loved it. Especially, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dark Sun setting. Mm-mm. It is... To this day, and there's a series of books by an author named Troy Denning and a few other authors as well. Uh, it is my favorite setting of all time, let alone D&D setting. It was just the coolest. Uh, it's like kind of a desert apocalyptic world uh, where city-states are run by sorcerer kings and every fantasy trope in it is terribly perverted. Like the elves are now uh, like nomadic thieves, the... Um, like honorless thieves. The halflings live in the jungle and are basically cannibals. Um, it was just so cool. And it was all about like survival. And when, when people cast magic, like the plants around them died and stuff like that, it was really cool. That's a nice Seven. twist on the usual. Oh, it was so good. They, they did re-release it with fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, but unfortunately fourth edition was the, was the really, really, really shitty one where they kind of tried to emulate world of Warcraft and dumb it down. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately the greatest setting of all time got, wasted on that on that so that's too bad yeah that's a shame yeah uh, i only got into dungeons and dragons last early last year it was the first time oh, i yeah? ever played it and i was one of those yeah. people who like logically i should have loved it because i love fantasy and super nerdy and i just didn't have a group of friends ever who was in into it mm-hmm. so i bought the beginner kit for me and my sons because they're old enough yeah and then it just sat there for a year we never touched yeah. the thing because we opened it once looked at all the rules and like Ugh. like not knowing how to do it ourselves yeah it was too daunting and then my girlfriend and uh, a couple friends got together and um the with the one guy i played it before so he he dm'd the first time yeah it all now now we play on a, on the regular with a couple different groups but it's it's so layered like there's so many rules to that thing if you really really want to play 
intensely. It's crazy. Yeah. It helps to have someone to show you the ropes, obviously. Yeah. And it also helps just to get someone who, I mean, I definitely played with groups when I was younger who took it a little too seriously for my, for my liking. <laughs> and I think if I had met them first, I, I might not have liked as much as I did. I, I like a group that's, you know, pretty easygoing, pretty laid back, pretty flexible on the rules. And that ultimately kind of prioritizes uh, fun. Uh, so, which yeah. it sounds like you guys are doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just oh, it's just a fun story, and we have a blast yeah. with it, and we do play fast and loose with the rules, which I think makes it a lot of fun too. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, all right, so tell me about the theater stuff. Why? Why did you head into theater in the first place? What was the motivation? There? I just wanted to be the next Tom Cruise, like everyone else. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, no, I really. Yet. You, you can yeah. still get there, Nick. <laughs> Um, I really, really just, I, I liked acting. Like I said, we went to a, a theater school where it was like a big, big deal. And yeah, I mean, I certainly don't regret it because it was, it was two years. I, it wasn't really the best, you know, theater course ultimately in the end, but I met the greatest friends of my life there and just had, a, had an amazing time. Like I didn't, you go to school for theater. I didn't have to have a binder. I didn't have a pen. Everyone else did, but I sure as hell didn't. Uh, it was just a good time. And uh Yeah. I don't regret it. And I, and I think maybe ultimately I like to think that some of it did translate into, into helping my writing just because not only do you learn empathy, but you, you learn to think about performance and, and what, like when you're going to, when people sigh, even when they shrug, what you're going to do, what gestures you make, what your face looks like. And I think you can translate that into writing oh, yeah. compelling scenes. I think so. I mean, you're seeing uh, the story from characters perspectives as an actor. I mean, I assume that, that point of view would really help when you're actually creating characters and, you know, giving them the lines and having them build out your scenes. Yeah. You're thinking so much how you're going to lend this, how you're going to lend this scene gravity if it requires that or, or something fun if it requires that. And so, yeah, hopefully you can, I've parlayed that over. Uh, did you work in theater for a while? Like, was it, did you act? Not really, no. Cause shortly thereafter I moved out to Vancouver. I lived in uh, Ontario at the time, moved to Vancouver, uh, which is the, the Hollywood of Canada. And I was in a play here, but but kind of shortly thereafter, like I had a couple of friends here that were trying to act as well. And I was just like, I don't want to be in an industry, I thought naively at the time, that where you have to rely on someone else in luck to get in. Mm-hmm. I thought if you just write a good book, you're published. Little did I know, it's exactly what publishing is. You, you can write a great book, but still you got to rely on finding the right agent that's in the mood for what your book and then them finding the right editor that's in the mood for your book. And uh, so it's exactly the same damn thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. When, how old were you when you moved to, or so what year did you move to Vancouver? Uh, I think 1999 or so. We were in Vancouver at the exact same time. Oh yeah. How long did you live in Vancouver for? Uh, three years in the area. I, I went to Vancouver film school in 99. That's why. Oh, I cool. There. Yeah. That's a uh, great school. Uh, it, yeah, it was. And it, I went for writing for film and television and it was class yeah. number two. Like, I think they're on class hundred and something now, but I was wow. the second class to take it. And there was plastic still on the chairs and they still kept switching instructors. It was a crazy, crazy time. Oh, crazy. I have no idea. It was so, so young because it's so, it's so prestigious in Vancouver, at least if someone's well, going there. Yeah. Well, the film program itself has been kicking around for ages and ages. And Kevin Smith was like a big, you know. Yeah name for them for quite some time and yeah their grads have gone on to do great stuff now but yeah the, the writing program is new at the turn of the century there they just started it it was just a six-month program then and i think it's a year now but mm-hmm. i had the same thing i had the hopes and dreams of writing for film and television and after taking it and working in bits and pieces of film for three or four years i was like yeah like it's so based on networking and who you know and falling ass over backwards into success and i was like i'll write a novel instead because novel writing like if you write a, again the exact same mindset if you write a good novel 
Like yeah. people will pick it up, no problem. And boy, was yeah. I mistaken. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, and I was further away than I thought, obviously, from writing a good novel. So that was <laughs> also an impediment. <laughs> well, you were writing your sweeping epic at the time. So that does True. make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even then I, I had a bit of luck when it actually came to getting published and getting an agent. So yeah. Well, yeah. tell me about that. How did that process go? Well, by a bit of luck, I mean a lot of luck in that I, um, like you on Instagram or on, sorry, TikTok, seeing my cover, I was on Twitter, early Twitter, the good old days, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and saw the cover for a book called Trader's Blade, uh, which was awesome looking. It was a, and there, there's other covers for it that aren't as awesome looking, but this one was phenomenal. Kind of looked like the cover of Dragon Age. Um, and it was by an author named Sebastian de Castell, who happened to, uh, when I read it, live in Vancouver. He was a sword fighting instructor in, in, in Vancouver. And so I read it and I loved it. It was great. It's kind of like a, there's a four book series called The Great Coats. It's kind of like a fantasy Three Musketeers, um, really funny. And then one night while I was up flirting with the hostess of the restaurant I worked at, I saw his, uh, the name de Castell on the reservation list. And I'm like, holy crap, I wonder if that's him. And sure enough, Sebastian de Castell, I'm like, put him in my section. So he came in and he was there with his wife. It was her birthday. And uh, and I was like, hey, I love your books. I'm writing a book too. And he was very gracious. And at the time I was about three quarters of the way done, Kings of the Wild. And uh, there was an agent who had read my previous book, not taken it, but had said he liked it enough to say, whatever you write next, send me that. Um, and so yeah, he kind of wished me luck. And then a few months later, I saw him at the Vancouver Writers Festival and he remembered who I was. And he was like, how's that book coming? And I'm like, oh, I'm finished it. I'm, I sent it to this agent. And then that agent got back to me with like a, a not a yes, but not a no. And he wanted to work with me on it. And I thought, oh man, I got him. This is great. My my life is is all set. And for about three months, we went back and forth on this, on this uh, book, making a lot of changes. Uh, some that I kept. And in the end, he said no, and he passed on it. And by the, shortly after that, Sebastian came back into the, the restaurant and I told him what had happened. He knew this agent was a pretty big agent. So he thought it must not be crap. So he's like, well, let me maybe send it to my agent. And so by then I had sent it out to about 10 more um, in the meantime. And one of them got back to me and asked to read the whole thing. But by then his agent also got back to me and said she would take me on. So nice. So pretty fortuitous. It is fortuitous. There's yeah. a lot of stories like that. I don't think there is a standard way of doing it anymore. I think the days of just querying and getting an agent have probably kind of died off a little bit just because there's so many people doing it now that those kinds of stories, I, they're more, mine is similar. It's, it was just, you know, falling backwards into it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's more common these days. Yeah, and I think social media helps too. Obviously, it wasn't as prevalent back then. And nowadays, a lot of, a lot of, um, a- editors are on and agents are on uh you know twitter and they or instagram or what or whatnot tiktok and they will say what exactly what their wish list is what they're looking for and you can be like hey i've got this yeah and then, yeah it just helps people sort through it faster i suppose at that point so kings of the world where did the idea come from because i mean if you were busy writing the sweeping epic at the time and this was kind of a chapter <laughs> break for you like yeah where did that concept uh emerge from uh it, i got it shortly after i read the book ready player one um which was you know it's it's, some people love it some people hate it i loved it it was one of the only few books in my whole life where i was like like you know i love video games and i would rather play a video game almost any day before writing a book or reading a book and uh and one of the few books where i was like no nothing else comes first before keep keep reading this book so i loved it and it's very obviously a book about the things that that person loves that author loves Mm -hmm. and so that got me kind of thinking about my relationship with fantasy because for a long time i've been reading uh, a lot of grimdark and everything that was popular from 2008 to 2000 
15 was, you know, because of the success of authors like George R. R. Martin, Joe Abercrombie, Robin Hobb, etc. It wasn't very fantasy, wasn't very fantasy. And I didn't read a lot of books that had, if, it, if I read a book and it had a gobble in it, I'd be like, what is this teenage garbage? Like I'm 30 years old. I'm a grown ass man. I'm not reading a book with elves in it. Yeah. And there's just none, no fantasy had that really. And so uh, that I was reading anyway. And so I was like, like, boy, did I ever get away from that? And the book I was writing had, you know, not a lick of that. It was just about war and culture and religion and, you know, all the politics. Um, and so I was like, what if I just wrote something that was for the love of fantasy, you know, everything, like not just like every single fantasy trope in there mm-hmm. um, and not make up my own weird versions that people just don't get just the basic ones, like, you know, goblins, everyone knows what a goblin is basically. Uh, so yeah, it started with that. And also the music idea I think came from also ready player one. There's a scene where he has to unlock a key by, by, playing notes of a rush song um and as a canadian i probably should have known rush like the back of my hand already but i did not uh so i just started listening to a lot of rush and their their music especially their early music is very entwined with fantasy and so yeah somewhere around then the idea just came what if you know mercenary bands were rock bands or rock bands were mercenary bands and you know it sounds like the kind of idea you kind of think of well stoned and then don't do it but uh, I actually, I Googled it because I thought someone has to, has to have done this already. And from what I saw, no one had, and I just couldn't believe it. So I was like, okay, I better, I better write this thing. Yeah, no, it's a great concept. I mean, there's no, I can't think of any of the books that has like a bunch of mercenary bands in it. And certainly not to the extent where they are basically rock stars and performers in the way that they are in uh, in your books. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting interesting take i mean there's lots of obviously D kind of influences in there uh, I, mm-hmm. I did read somewhere that you are an avid uh, uh video gamer what, what do you play like what's your what's your poison uh pretty much i play all kinds of stuff uh, i do like to play games that i feel like enrich me in some way so whether that's uh, something that's really story-based or strategic um right. so i don't really like i ever you know if i'm playing for fun with a friend i might play something where you're shooting people but for the most part uh, I don't really like that kind of game. So obviously Final Fantasies, there's a lot, and I mean a lot of Final Fantasy like references and inspirations in both but both books. Um, and then also, you know, things like Total War, like strategy games and stuff yeah. like that. Pretty much any JRPG or kind of turn-based strategy game I love. That's awesome. I, yeah, I know that yeah. you built a bunch of the kind of Easter eggs and references into both books. I, and not being a an FF fan myself, I've never really played through Final Fantasy at all. And yeah, um, but I did. Oh, they're shameless, shameless. I, that's what I. I have a friend who absolutely adores them, and, and she plays a lot of them. But she always said I should try it. I, I always looked and was like, oh, I don't know. It seems like a lot of. And, uh, I, it's too big, I suppose, is is my problem. And it's the same problem I have with like Assassin's Creed and mm-hmm. the GTA games. Like it's too vast. I like a game with a start and a finish. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Me too. Me too. That's often why I don't I don't really like that much like wildly open world games that don't have mm-hmm. a, a narrative. I I think I want to play them and I start playing them and then I just get yes. lost and don't do the story. So I do prefer something, which I think which is what Final Fantasy kind of has going for it, because Final Fantasy is not like that at all. It's Usually, except for maybe Final Fantasy 15, which is a mess, it's just go go go. It's and some of them are straight up on rails, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy it more because I want the end of the story. I actually hate games that have multiple endings. I'm just like f off and tell me, give me the good ending. 
every time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, now you sound make, make it sound appealing, but if I play it based on your recommendation, my friend is never gonna forgive me. Well, yeah. Maybe wait until maybe wait. Yeah. Yeah. Until they mention time. it, and I'd be like, oh yeah. Well, Final Fantasy 16, the most recent one, is a great one to start with. It's right. it's got a little bit of exploration in it, but otherwise, it's pretty on rails, and it is epic beyond belief. So on the Switch, can you get on Switch? No. It's got to no, be. No, it's PS5 only at the moment. Okay. All right, fine. Anyway, we tangent. it. Um, the world building in Kings of the Wild. Like, I mean, yeah, you started with all the basics, obviously mercenaries, goblins, and those kind of things. But it's mm-hmm. way more vast than that. Like, you're underselling. That, that, there's a ton of components. How did you even start, like, mapping that out? Uh, well, that one I did not because it was kind of the opposite of what I'd done before that the entire time. My whole life I had spent, I had drawn the map of a book first, pretty much. And I used to, you know, I love drawing maps and I would make all the lore up and I would write the background of all this stuff and, and usually then not write the book. And so with Kings of the Wild, I was just like, I'm just going to write. And just if I, at, the, at first, I mean, the, the first version of the book was a lot smaller than the, than the final version of the book. And so I just, if I needed world building, I would just like vomit it out in Clay's perspective, add a little humor in there to like soften it up and move on and i kind of didn't world build very much at all and as i went on it it kind of um got a bit more complex uh and then with that agent like i was saying that agent that didn't take me on um originally like say my druids were were actually just an ancient roman-esque type empire and he was like can we make it more fantasies i was like sure so i'll give them rabbit ears um which is also a final fantasy homage um and yeah and and so and even things like the sky ships uh, they began as um, almost like like they had literally had like gasoline engines, like bombers, like Larkspur's Skyship was like a B-52 bomber kind of thing. Oh. Um, and so when I was making it, try to make it more fantasy and, and make everything kind of more cohesive in the world, I came up with the idea of what they are, which I really, really loved uh, in the end. It makes still makes for some awesome, cool Skyship scenes, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it just got fleshed out as I went along. And then in the editing process, I was fortunate enough to... Um, when Orbit picked it up, they were looking for larger books. So when I first finished it, it was 120,000 words. When my agent got done with it, it was 100,000 words. And then my editor asked me to add 50,000 words. And that is the episode for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed the first part. Tune in next week for the second part uh, with Nick as we talk more about his uh, world building and incorporating humor into fantasy. Uh, we also have an interesting conversation about erections, so you don't want to miss that. Nobody wants to miss that. If you want to grab these episodes earlier, I am excited to announce that we have a Patreon for StoryCentric now. So you can hop over to Patreon, look up the StoryCentric podcast, or check out the links in the bio of this podcast, and you can find it there. You'll get access to episodes earlier. You get them ad-free because ads are going to start scrolling here on the uh, the podcast again pretty soon. Uh, you can get some exclusive behind-the-scenes content. There's going to be some video footage from interviews in there and a few other things. So definitely go check it out. You know, the tiers start as low as $2 a month, so it is super cheap. Way, way, way cool and cheap. So be sure to check that out. So StoryCentric on Patreon. Go take a look. And uh, other than that, I'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.